you can imagine, life here at 9217 Gravoy has been challenging uh, the past couple of weeks. Even as Matt and Michelle walk this very difficult time with Mitchell and their family, life goes on for the rest of us. We are not able to hit the pause button or step off the train in the midst of everything that is going on. And the same is true for all of us in this room when these types of situations arise. This is one of the difficult aspects of life on earth. We've all seen it, and some of us have experienced it in great tragedy and hardship. Events and circumstances in our lives that we never asked for and wished never would have happened. And yet, as has been the case since sin entered the world in Genesis 3, shortly after the creation, and corrupted it, corrupted all of creation, this world is broken more extensively than we could ever comprehend, and we as human beings, throughout all of history, have had to live in it. We've had to walk through it, day by day, a day at a time. And as we stop and think about the struggles, the things that we see and experience that just don't make sense, we can't help but look up to God and ask, why? Why God? Why me? Why him? Why her? Why this? Why now? Yet as is the case with all heartbreaking and unfathomable events and circumstances, God does not always or even often give us an answer to this most visceral and gut-level desire for one. So many of life's big questions go unanswered for the duration of our lives, only to be presented to us again in the next heartbreaking and unfathomable circumstance that we encounter. These big questions that go unanswered can leave us frustrated and confused with God. And yet the Bible is not shy, but rather it is filled with statements by God and about God that have confounded people for thousands of years. Even our current series in Romans chapter 9 through 11, it has dealt with some deep and confusing issues about God and our standing as people before him. Paul, who wrote this letter we are studying, has talked about predestination versus free will. Where does salvation come from? Also, who is saved by God and who is not? These are just a couple deep and difficult issues that we've tried to at least cover and address, which Paul writes about in a series that we've called Anguish and Hope. And the coexistence of anguish and hope fits not just our present circumstances, but our attempt to live life in general. And so this morning, it's no different. In fact, as we get closer to the end of the series, this week and one more, and specifically to the end of chapter 11 of Romans, Paul only seems to ratchet things up with the bold and declarative statements about the power and the glory and the sovereignty of God. And with it, the possible why God moments. So without the promise of any answers to these big questions, or at least sufficient answers, Will you nonetheless join me as we continue our journey through Romans this morning in Romans chapter 11, verse 17 through 24. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others 
and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, there are two or three big themes with some pretty intense statements made in this passage, and we don't have time to delve into all of them. The one that is the, kind of the overarching theme that takes up the first portion of the passage and Paul touches on in the last verse is one that we are going to just cover briefly. And that's summarized in verses 17 through 20, picking up on Matt's message from last week. Last week, Matt talked about the power of envy and how God created a, a grace, a path to himself through Christ that was so attractive that he wanted the Jews who had been removed because they rejected God to see his grace and to want back in, to back into the game, back into the, the, the promise of God. Not through the law of Moses, which had been their previous pathway, but now through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that's what verse 17 through 20 talk about. However, there's one big problem in this arrangement, and that's where Paul picks up in verse 24. The Gentiles who were added later were now arrogant toward the Jews because of it. They are insiders, the Jews are outsiders, and now there is this pride that's welled up within them. It's kind of like having multiple children, which I would know nothing about, and you're about to go out to eat with just one of your children. Now, by the way, this might be a normal thing for you. In the Zilke family, this is Disneyland. A child and one parent outside the home eating something that didn't come from the kitchen. Do you know how expensive it is to take a family of 10 out to eat? $50 minimum, Chick-fil-A pizza, and it only goes up from there. We do not go out often, and so when this opportunity comes, it is a privilege, and they know it. So this child, I've come home from work, I've scheduled my lunch off, I'm going to take him out for lunch, and right before we're about to leave, this child gets in trouble. They do something foolish, and a consequence must come for their action, and the consequence is they miss out on this lunch. Well, I'm home, I'm already there, who's in the batter's box, who's up next? That child steps up, and we're about to head out to lunch, and as we walk past the child who had been disciplined, that child turns around and gives the proverbial, na 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 Now, that's not going to fly in a Zilke house. 
And that doesn't fly with God either. That's what God is addressing in the heart of the Gentile Christians in the beginning of this passage. His grace has brought them in, and the humanness that all of us struggle with has turned that into an act of pride and arrogance. And so that's verses 17 through 20, him speaking to. But then he continues in verse 20, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning in the next several verses. In verse 20, he says this, speaking to the Gentile Christians who are now in the fold and the Jews probably who are also in there. But he says this, but you stand fast, fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Now we have these two principles, these two statements, stand fast, but fear. And we're going to delve into those here for a bit. What's this idea of standing fast? This is real interesting. Well, the Bible, there are many Bible verses that talk about the importance of standing fast in our faith. Jesus tells a parable that shows up in a couple of Gospels about seed that falls on different types of soil. You might have heard of it. There's rocky soil, there's thorny soil, there's the pathway, and then there's good soil. Well, the first three soils, seeds that fall in that soil, they die. They might die immediately or they might have a short life but then pass, but all three of those seeds go to destruction. The only seed that enters into salvation is the one that lands in the good soil and grows and thrives. And here, one of the lessons Jesus is teaching is the enduring of faith and the importance. I grew up in a faith tradition that greatly emphasized the term eternal security. Have you ever heard that term in church before, eternal security? Well, it's the desire of well-meaning religious people to give people the confidence that their faith can endure in this life, but they mix it up a little bit. It's misapplied, and it was misapplied in the church that I grew up in. They would say something like this, especially to us as children. They would say, if you just pray this prayer, you ask Jesus into your heart, you can know for the rest of your life that you are saved and guaranteed to go to heaven when you die. Yes, sign me up. I'm in. That's all it takes. And so a bunch of us kids prayed that prayer. I can see it. My friends, I went to church with growing up. Well, many of my friends who prayed that prayer didn't know what it meant. And years later, they do not believe in God. They are not enduring in the faith. They are not following Jesus. And I can only draw from that something went incredibly wrong with that communication. We need to be careful and not give people false hope in a prayer, but rather introduce them, even our children, even the little ones, who we want to be saved, to Jesus Christ and a relationship with him that endures throughout our lives. This is a difference than asking them to pray a prayer and to believe in that moment. Because who knows in their heart what it is that they're praying for. Jesus affirms this again in Matthew 24, verses 12 and 13, when he says this, the words of Jesus here, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. There's a danger in that love growing cold. Stand fast. And then in that same verse, he gives us the term, but fear. So do not become proud, speaking to the Gentile Christians, but in a larger sense, he's saying, but fear. 
Now, this is another directive to us that's difficult for us to understand. Why? Well, we live in a non-fearful environment. We want comfort. We want ease. We want grace. We want compassion. And also, the Bible tells us in other passages not to fear. In 1 John 4.18, we are told there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And even earlier in Romans, in chapter 8, verse 15, Paul tells us this. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And that's a modern translation of Daddy, that intimate Father relationship. These two verses are cornerstone verses in the Christian life and how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to live out our faith, how we're supposed to grow up in maturity in Christ in whom we have believed, teaching us to reject the spirit of fear toward God and his imminent condemnation of sin and specifically our sin. And yet the words are right here on the page, but fear. And they aren't just here, they are elsewhere in Scripture. In Proverbs 1.7, we're told, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in Matthew 10.28, again, the words of Jesus, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is it? Which is it? Do we fear? Don't we fear? How do we reconcile these apparent, contradictory passages? Well, many theologians would say that this is a different kind of fear that we read about in the last two verses. This is not a fear of condemnation for our sins, which Jesus has died for, but a powerful and intimate awareness of the judgment of God upon sin. It's a reverence, it's an awe, rather than a fear as we might innately understand being afraid of something. Now, that could be right, but Paul here is still very emphatic that God is not this cuddly teddy bear who's available to us on call when we need him. In fact, in verse 21, he gives a very stern warning to those who would tread casually, even flippantly, on his grace when he says this, for if God did not spare the natural branches, speaking of the Jews, who left him, neither will he spare you. Those aren't cuddly words. Those aren't the words of a teddy bear. Stand fast, but fear. And then he continues in verse 22. It's a short verse, but it is packed. Verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Now, we're going to walk through this verse backwards. We're going to start with the severity. The severity of God. What an unhappy word. From the root, severe. It's a powerful word, though, isn't it? Severe. It's one of those English words that kind of cuts like a knife through whatever else might be said in that moment. You hear the word severe, and you kind of take a step back. Wow. It's a word I like to use when disciplining or warning my children. Your consequences will be 
severe. We see it in movies when the villain is going to exact their revenge. His retribution will be severe. Now we've already talked a little bit about the severity of God. The idea of fearing him is drawn out of this severity. Several weeks ago, Matt preached about the tsunami of God's wrath and the warning signs. But the fact that in minutes, an earthquake hundreds of miles away can cause a natural event that can wipe out hundreds of thousands of people in a matter of minutes. Just a glimpse of severity. In these last couple of weeks, one storm wandering and off the Atlantic coast at a size just kind of hunker down, flooding, rivers overflow, people washed up, lives ended, millions of people running for refuge, and it's one little storm. Severe. Does God want these things to happen? I don't think so. But the same God who created and sustains the fury of our own sun in the sky, 93 million miles away, which is small by comparison to other stars in the sky, is the same God who judges righteously in all things, and specifically disobedience and sin. It's the same God. And he is a severe, severe God. But you want to know what the greatest expression of God's severity is? The simple little Roman torture device. This is how God was going to deal with the incomprehensible problem on our part of sin. Sin is present. Sin is a problem. Sin will lead to our death and our destruction. And God reveals to us his severity in its greatest expression. How do you explain this? How do any of us sit here and try to explain the severity of God as seen here? We can't. But we're also told to look at another part of God. We're told to look at his kindness, the kindness of God. And what is the kindness of God? The kindness of God is every breath of life that he has deigned to give us. Every moment, every day. The heart pumps, we do nothing to make it happen. The lungs go in and out, we do nothing to make it happen. The very fact that we exist, that we have life, that we have love, God's grace, it's his kindness. It's the glimpses that we see of a life to come, also known as heaven, when all the tears and all the sickness and all the sadness are finally put away forever. I've said this before, I'll say it again, I love my wife for many reasons, one of them is that she always longs and reminds me to long for heaven. I love this world way too much. She reminds me, heaven is where it's at. God's kindness is seen in innumerable ways, but it's seen most vividly on the same torture device, but with his own son hanging on it. This is the kindness of God expressed to us. Because without this, without this happening, without the crushing of his own son on our behalf, there is no life, there is no future, there is no heaven, there is no escape from the severe and righteous judgment of God in sin. The severity of God is real, so real that his own son 
received the full release of it. You and I have rebelled from God and we've turned from him just like the Jews that Paul mentions in the beginning of this passage. And yet through his kindness, this kindness, God can invite us into his presence. So what do we do? Well, that takes us back to the first two words of this verse, verse 22. And they're simple words. We wouldn't think much about them. But what are those words? Note then. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Note then. He doesn't just say this is the kindness and severity of God. He says, note then. Take notice of. Look at. Look again. Behold. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. When you and I see something that is severe, in our crazy society, many of us like to gawk and look at the accident, the collision, the horrible thing that's happening, but because we've been desensitized to that, often when something is really difficult, really grotesque, we look away. When something is confusing and hard to understand, a project or a task before us, we tend to avoid it. We tend to step away. I'll deal with that later. The hard things are the things we tend to push away. The hard things are the things we tend to draw away from. The things that we can't comprehend. The things we can't explain. Things we don't want to. Things like severity and kindness running together. And yet Paul says very clearly, note then. He wants us to behold. God is the lion that cannot be contained. He's ferocious. And he's powerful. We go to the zoo, we love staring at the lion. The big glass wall wasn't between us. We would run in fear. He's the storm that comes off the coast, but he's also the refuge in the storm. He is both. The storms are going to come, but God promises to be the refuge for us in that storm. And he says, Look again at the kindness and at the severity of God. His son on the Roman torture device. It is our impulse to look away, to diminish, to think about easier things. But as we understand today, we don't always have the option to look away. Sometimes we are forced to look and to see the thing that we wish we didn't have to look at and see. And we should. We should behold the kindness and the severity of God because the reality of a creator God who crushed his own son in order to open a way of salvation for you and I is the most glorious and the most confounding thing that we could ever face. And we don't understand it and we won't understand it. Maybe on the other side, maybe when we get to heaven and God can illuminate in our mind fully, maybe then we'll get this thing that happened behind us at some capacity but shorter than all we do is we sing songs about it and we pray about it and we proclaim it. 
And so this morning, in spite of the horror, in spite of the difficulty, God invites us to behold, to take note of his kindness and his severity. We do that by coming and gathering, by offering words that we may not feel like singing, but that we do out of obedience to him, believing in a future. We do that by opening up his word where he has most vividly revealed himself and his kindness and his severity to know God, to know his kindness, to know his severity without reading his word is impossible. It cannot be done. The glimpses that pass us by will confuse us, will give us just a distorted view. As his people, we cannot obey this command without opening his book and reading about both, both of these aspects of his nature. So this morning, I just invite you, invite each of us to behold, to note again, his kindness and his severity revealed and his love in us through Jesus Christ and all the promises he's given us therein. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled hopefully fearful to some degree when we think about who you are. It is our propensity as people, especially sophisticated, intelligent, capable people like we are in our day and age to to minimize you, to shrink you down into a manageable size. But you are the furious lion who will not be tamed, who will not be put behind a glass barrier who will run wild, who will do as he chooses. But who through the promise of Jesus has promised to protect us and not ultimately judge and destroy us. For the hurting people here today, just pray for your grace. Whatever that means, whatever that looks like, I pray. I pray that we wouldn't be afraid to behold. I pray that as we behold and we see the severity, we would also see the kindness to protect us from the enemy who would seek to make ill of our collision with the severity and you and your spirit would remind us of the kindness and give us the grace and the courage and the strength to live through today, one more day. Thank you for a community, a place to come and just be be a church, to be a family. We pray for your grace and your wisdom, your direction for the days and the weeks ahead. We pray for healing. We pray for miracles. We pray for a vivid illumination of your presence to us individually, but also to us corporately as we just seek to follow after you with each day that we are given. We ask all this.